Hello, welcome back. We're here today for the second episode of the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and social care. I'm Helen McKenna, and I'm your host. Coming up later in the episode, we're going to hear from one of the managers of our information and knowledge service, otherwise known as the King's Fund Library, about the sorts of questions they get asked to research by the public, including, I think, the most unusual question they've ever been asked. But before that, we're going to take a look back at this winter and how the NHS coped with it, and also think about whether the winter ever really ends for the NHS, or whether these days we're just in a perpetual state of never-ending winter. To help us with this, we're joined by two of my colleagues here at the Fund, Siva and Andesiva, and Matthew Kershaw. Siva and Matthew, if you could introduce yourselves and uh, cover three points, please. So firstly, tell listeners what your role here at the Fund is. Second of all, can you tell us what qualifies you to be here today and talking to us about winter? And also thirdly, maybe something people might not necessarily know about you. So maybe a personal secret. Siva, why don't you start us off? Great, thank you. <laughs> so, so my role here at the King's Fund is Chief Analyst in the policy team, so I cover things like funding, finances and performance, and all of these things are related when it comes to A&E. What qualifies me? So I've been talking about winter for what seems like forever, but it's close to about 10 years now. About 10 years ago, I was working in the Department of Health on urgent and emergency care performance. And at that time, someone said, listen, son, every five years, we try and reinvent the wheel and do the same things over and over again. And I think when it comes to urgent care policy, things like A&E, that is slightly true. Uh, and I continued into my next job at NHS Providers, an organization that represents hospitals, also covering winter and pressures on hospitals, ambulance services, uh, in the NHS. So it feels like I've been talking about winter for a while, if that qualifies me to talk about it a little bit longer. And in terms of a personal secret, uh, there is nothing I can share um, <laughs> over the airwaves. So instead, I will talk about another thing that qualifies me to talk about A&E, which is my personal experience of it. I'm a heavy user, uh, having broken my wrist, my arm, my shoulder blade, my spine and at least one other bone that I can't remember, my kneecap, that was it. All of which involved me uh, using or passing through A&E. Great, thank you for that, Siva. Matthew, tell us about yourself. Okay, I'm a senior fellow here at the King's Fund, uh, and I've been here for about six months. Uh, previous to that, I've worked for the NHS for 25 years. Uh, that's my quarter century anniversary this year uh, and uh, I think that helps qualify me for this conversation because I've spent a lot of time operationally, uh, strategically and then as chief executive in three trusts uh, managed uh, winter and the winter pressures and all things that hospitals do on a day-to-day -day basis. So I've got lots of real experiences to bring to such a conversation. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, a personal secret, um, uh, I'm trying to learn to sing this year. That's one of my new uh, resolutions for this year. I'm struggling to get on with it, but I am making some <laughs> progress. Fantastic. So perhaps you can sing to us about winter pressures <laughs> in this episode. That's a horrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start with how bad this winter was for the NHS, because I guess if you look at what the media was saying, get the impression that it really was the worst 
winter ever and maybe that's the case but we saw images of ambulances queuing up and, and trolleys stacked up in in corridors Siva, can you tell us what the data actually says sure so on on the one hand I, I can't remember a time when the NHS has said you know what that was a great winter it was one of the best on record so it always feels like an annual competition for was this one the worst but I think you know, you mentioned data. We do have some data that suggests it was, it was a different winter. So I'm looking at a stat in front of me here. Seventy-six point four percent of patients were seen within four hours in Type One A and E departments. Now that's important because we have a national standard for ninety-five percent of patients to be seen within four hours. It's probably the totemic standard of the last ten to fifteen years. It was a sign of all uh, the public and patients would get in return for additional money flowing into the system. So to slip back so far to the extent that just under three quarters of patients are seen in four hours is a real indictment of the pressures that were experienced this winter. And what's unusual is we've got this poor performance in waiting times, but we haven't had a massive flu outbreak. It wasn't an easy winter, but we still haven't seen the types of norovirus, influenza, uh, winter vomiting bugs, all these things that normally really wreck your winter plans. So that suggests that the NHS is just having all these performance issues because we haven't given it the resources it needs to cope with winter uh, pressures. So I think that that is one stat that leaps out at me. The second stat, and probably the final stat I will, I will bring today, is 9 of 137 NHS hospitals running major A&E services met the standard in the last uh, month. So that's only nine organisations that have seen patients within four hours. When I was working in the Department of Health, you could count on one hand the number of places that were failing the standard. And now you can just about count on two hands the number of places that are meeting it. So that shows how far we've fallen in quite a short amount of time, really. So, Sivra, I think you were talking about March data just then. Do you think we're going to see that improve over the rest of the year? Or is it right that we're now looking at an NHS that is in a sort of perpetual state of winter? So you're right. Those figures I provided were for March 2018. If we were talking a few years ago, I would say I'd expect performance to start bouncing back. But I think the last year or two has shown us that that won't be the case going forward. I think the service, any departments, ambulance services will remain under pressure as we stretch into spring and summer. This is where all the quotes about uh, the NHS being in Narnia, you know, Mm. it's it's a winter that never ends and there's no Christmas either, are true. And that's because in in the past you could definitely see this surge in activity over winter and then systems would recover as Easter approached. Activity, particularly demand for admissions to hospital, the really serious cases would start to tail off and performance would start to creep back up. Now what we seem to find is something very, very different, which is you have your winter pressures, you get hospitals get swamped with demand, ambulance services get swamped with demand, waiting times increase, and then you don't get that bounce anymore in summer. You don't get that bounce in, in spring and services aren't recovering. And that suggests it's not, it's not necessarily a problem with demand, more people needing care. It's a problem with supply. Do we have enough hospital beds? Do we have enough staff to provide care? And if you don't, that's when you'd see year-round performance uh, as pressured as we've seen it. What are some of the other drivers that are um, resulting in hospitals feeling the pressure so much? I think you could... So why are hospitals under pressure? You can 
divide it at its most basic level into supply and demand. So on the one hand, you have got increasing demand. So something like 2%, 3% a year, attendances go up at A&E departments, which would be fine if we were increasing the number of nurses, doctors, hostel beds to cope with it, or if we were getting more efficient in how we treat these patients. And what you're seeing is the service is trying to improve how it deals with patients, but you've only got so many staff, it's not growing at the rate you need to keep pace with demand, and that ends up in the place of hospital departments, A&E departments that were built to see 60,000 people a year, seeing 100,000. The numbers always change, but the message is always, we're seeing double what we were built for. Okay, Matthew, you've been a chief exec of a hospital, I'm assuming including during the winter. What does it feel like when you're managing winter pressures? I mean, I think there's a bit here which is you're managing pressures consistently, um, but and therefore there's always a level at which the pressure is on. Uh, the pressure is on from a number of fronts. So you feel pressure yourself uh, because you want to do the best you can as the chief executive um, to you know, run your organisation the best way you can. You feel pressure from staff who, you know, you see them, you talk to them, you feel the pressure and the concern that they have about some of the things they're having to do and some of the environments that they're having to do that in. Um, you see pressure from patients uh, and the public who, you know, walking through a waiting room when people have been waiting for a long time and got forlorn looks on their faces or are sitting on the floor because there's no chairs. You know, when you're the person ultimately responsible for that, one thing it doesn't feel is good uh, you know you feel embarrassed you feel upset for them you feel like you just want to make it better tomorrow and you know you can't but you also get pressure from you know colleagues um, you know in the board uh, you get pressure from external environments from the local media from politicians uh, from the regulators you know everybody wants this system to be working better and if you can't make it so then that pressure does come to a lot of people and the pressures are different for different groups of people so if you're a staff nurse in A&E and you're trying to manage you know twice as many patients coming through your doors on a particular day than the department has actually been built for that's a hell of a lot of pressure to face and how does it feel as a chief exec walking around the hospital and seeing with your own eyes, um, that clearly patients aren't getting the experience that they should get? I mean, to, I always felt a number of things. Firstly, strange thing to say, but proud of the staff who are working exceptionally hard in sometimes almost impossible circumstances to try and do the best they possibly can. And despite all of the pressures and the figures around the statistics, I personally still think you know the quality and the responsiveness of our emergency care is compares pretty well with what's happening around the world. Now, I'm not saying that's good enough. Mm. We want to be even better. But I still think there's a lot of pride that we can have in what people are doing. So, Matthew, you mentioned that uh, actually internationally, the NHS does quite well in comparison to other countries, despite the pressures that it's currently experiencing. Um, Siva, what does the data say on that? How do we compare with other countries? So the NHS compares very well with other countries, and I think this is this is one of the things I really struggle with, because on the one hand, every winter, we're called in and asked, how bad is any performance? And I, I do my bit saying, well, it's you know under a lot of pressure and performance is sliding. But if you look back, there are three things that that provides some helpful context. One is the international comparisons you just raised. 
So I printed it out, but it's a podcast, so actually that chart is pretty useless. But there is a helpful chart that compares waiting times for A&E in this country with Canada, with Switzerland, with Norway, with other countries that we think of as similar health economies, and we come out incredibly well. A very small proportion of people wait for emergency care over five hours compared to, compared to the other countries on this list. Uh, I could try and describe the chart, but let's just say we're better than Sweden, better than France, better than New Zealand, and better than Australia and the United States. So internationally, we compare well on any waiting times. The second thing is over time. So I know I talked earlier um, about how performance has slid in recent years, but you compare it to 15, 20 years ago. I remember someone telling me, someone who works in a trust, he was telling me, the time sent in their war correspondent to cover the A&E department. Things were that bad in terms of how long people were waiting. So you look internationally, you look over time in the long run, and we're doing relatively well in A&E performance. And the final thing is you ask patients, how long does it feel you've been waiting in A&E? Do you think you were seen quickly? Are you happy in terms of recommending the service to friends and family? And despite all these pressures, despite the media commentary, despite the commentary I give, patients are broadly happy with the service they get. So that's one of the hard things to reconcile. The pressure is absolutely real, but we're comparing well internationally. We compare well with the past, and patients like the service that is being delivered. And that's one of the, the things we have to find our way through. Often the focus in winter is on hospitals, and then when other services, general practice, community services are discussed, it's about the sort of the shortages or lack of provision there that is making an impact on hospitals. And and maybe you could cover that. But also, what does winter look like for those services? Presumably they're, they're also under pressure. I think it comes back to this totemic point. So absolutely, All services, primary care, community services will experience pressure over winter. And absolutely the purpose of a GP, a GP doesn't exist simply to take pressure off a hospital. But we spent so much time and so much money investing in A&E services. And that was the offer. That was the deal to the public. You will get quick access to care. I think the fact that A&E swallows up all all the oxygen in any room when you talk about winter shows how far we are from this new vision where... We have an NHS more focused on keeping people well, keeping people healthy, than treating them quickly when they get ill. It just shows how far we've got to go. Where does money feature as a driver? Because in the autumn budget last year, the government announced some extra, I think it was you know 300-odd million pounds for the NHS to tackle or support it during winter. And obviously we then went on to see all the pressures as we've just discussed. Did that money, was it too late in the day for the NHS to use it? Or why didn't that money go further in terms of improving the situation? So there is a long tortured history in the NHS of what we call winter funding, but in various years has been called resilience funding, or I don't know if Matthew can remember any other things. But it all had a common feature, which is it comes out around autumn, when it's very late in the day to spend it, and the system is suddenly flooded with cash. So I'm running an NHS hospital, suddenly I'm invited to bid for funding to help me manage winter. Well, it's very late in the day for me to find new staff, it's very late in the day for me to redesign how I deliver care, it's very late in the day for me to go and buy capacity for beds in residential nursing homes. So I think you're right that the lateness of when this funding arrives whether it's enough funding in the first place, are all issues that limit its effectiveness. And the other thing is, I could give uh, the most challenged hospital, the most challenged A&E department, all the money in the world, 
that's not going to solve its problem if it can't recruit the staff it needs to deliver the care, if it hasn't got enough hospital beds uh, to admit patients. So these are all factors that limit uh, how far the money will go, even if it came on time. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd concur with Siva's uh, comments this year, as in uh, previous years, uh, too late uh, for it to help with transforming a service and too high an expectation that it will quickly. Um, so you're a politi- put yourself into the shoes of a politician. We've just given the health service another X millions of pounds. We want that to make a difference. So there's a huge expectation that it's going to, but it's too late to actually affect real change on the ground. So you get potentially the worst of both worlds. The politicians feel like they've gone the extra mile to create some more money. The NHS, having asked for more money, gets it. The politicians then think, well, it must get better. And the NHS is saying, yeah, but you've got to give it to us early. You've got to give it to us in a different way because that's not actually going to help us. So both both groups of people feel like they're not getting what they want from that conversation. The net effect being the services from a patient's perspective and from a staff's perspective don't move and it just feels like the same and it feels like there's money being poured in with no real benefit coming from it. And so is money a factor for sure? It is. Uh, it would be really interesting to see what happens with the long-term settlement because if the long-term settlement comes up with something that gives transformation funding and gives it over a longer time period with an expectation it's going to take a period of time to deliver real sustainable transformational change that would be a fantastic thing so Matthew you brought us on to the idea of sort of uh, solutions for the future and both of you have mentioned these issues around workforce shortages and and the role they play in in increasing the pressures on hospitals obviously there's the workforce strategy I think coming up over the next few months what do you think are the solutions for making sure that this last winter doesn't happen again this winter or do you think we're already too late I mean from a workforce perspective to expect the winter of 2018-19 to be massively different in terms of the workforce that we've got can get um, I think is unlikely to change it's going to be basically what we have this year just gone Uh, and that's a slight danger when Mm. you know any number of politicians stand up and say we've put money aside to recruit x thousand extra whatever they are i think there's a misunderstanding uh, and i can understand why it's so but there's a misunderstanding that that means those people are going to appear tomorrow and be active the next day and the service will be different by the weekend you know the pay, the public it's not explained in a way that says well this is going to take a decade to get right because that's not a time frame that really works in these circumstances because everybody wants you know quick immediate answers to what are long-standing difficult problems so i would personally say in short answer it's likely to be much the same from a workforce perspective this year and if we're not careful next year unless we start making big decisions now and the workforce strategy is clearly a big part of that so actually what you're sort of saying is that at best we might see things improve um, in terms of pressures and, and particularly winter pressures for patients from about 2021 22 onwards if if action is taken now Siva what what are your thoughts so I think if you're if you're trying to improve any performance and you realize staff and the workforce are a huge part of that you've got to think long term you've got to think about is it an attractive career you know if I was advising someone I think emergency doctors and nurses are worth their weight in gold 
but you can't do any private practice, you have to work long hours, you have to retire at the same age, you can't get early retirement, um, even though you're on your feet the whole the whole shift. So um, there's got to be some thought about how we incentivize people to move into this profession. And obviously, we've got to get enough people uh, training to be emergency care uh, physicians and nurses. All of that's great, all of that's long-term, all of that's important. None of it will help solve the winter crisis that will we'll start talking about here in about four months' time. So I think either you've got to accept that performance is going to stay broadly where it is, or you're looking at changing the tactics you have. And one of the things, this isn't official King's Fund policy, but one of the things that I think it's interesting to look at is it's a national health service, but each hospital at the moment, each service holds on to its own emergency care staff as its own resource. If you start thinking, should we be a bit more flexible? Should we see if we've got people in the right place and maybe sharing staff where needed over a region to even out um, supply, to meet demand a little bit better? Is that one of the things that we should look at? That's a sort of tactical approach I think we should be more open to if we really want to improve performance. And just briefly, what about learning from elsewhere? Are there other parts of the country that this winter did manage okay? And what can we learn from them? I'd say if we could create a bit more headroom for people to have that time and space and energy to actually direct effort into improvements and innovations and not be feeling like you're firefighting every day or reporting a whole load of stuff to increasing numbers of regulators or fending off questions from politicians and the media, then we'd actually have a better chance of making some of those improvements that could and should be made now in advance of more transformational change. But the lived experience of most frontline clinicians and senior managers in the system when it gets into real distress is that you have no time at all for that. And that's a real problem. So thank you both for for offering your views uh, today. And, And it sounds like there's still a long way to go before winter in the NHS is solved. Thanks both. Thank you. Thank you. If you've been to the Kingston building before, you might have seen that we have a wonderful library, officially known as the Information and Knowledge Service. Today, we're joined by Hongan Nguyen, who is one of the service managers. Hongan, can you tell us about what you do and a bit about the service? We are the library for the King's Fund. Uh, We support people here, people like yourself, in the research and the work that we do. But we are also uh, unique in that we're a public library as well. So for anyone out there who has a question about health or social care policy, we're here to support any needs. We get questions from all sorts of people. So we get questions from the public, we get questions from researchers, academics, people who work in parliament or government, and also the media. So a really broad range of people, all with like different research needs and wanting to know different things about the system. So we get about 1,600 inquiries uh, a year and half of these are kind of in-depth research inquiries and the number is rising. So definitely people are more interested in knowing more about the system. Okay, and so are you going to run us through a couple of the sorts of questions that people ask? Yeah, so I brought along a couple of the questions. So this is a question that came from our recent Health and Care Explained event. We had people submitting questions on an app during some of the sessions. And one of the ones I picked up on was a question that when I saw it, I thought, actually, I don't know the answers to that either. And it was 
uh, during our social care session and someone submitted a question about the social care green paper and they wanted to know what exactly is a green paper. So in health and social care or in government policy we very often have green papers and white papers. I think you might know a bit about what the difference is. So my, you're going to correct me, I'm, I assume, but um, my take would be that a green paper is where the government is asking more of a genuine question of stakeholders and the public about a policy issue. Yeah. So where they're really trying to gather information and ideas because they haven't yet developed fully their policy proposals. Yeah. Whereas a white paper, I think would be where the government has developed quite thought through policy proposals and is consulting more in a kind of because they formally have to and they might revise their proposals a little bit but they're basically preparing to lay legislation down for those for the new policy and it's pretty much thought through and and almost defined so gold star to you that's generally right thank you you're looking very happy right now so yeah generally the green paper is when there's no real firm proposals and it's much more exploratory it's not as far down the line as a white paper so a white paper might include something like a a piece of draft legislation or draft bill Mm -hmm. so yeah they're kind of just at different stages in the journey of policy making so can I just check something? I should know because I used to work in the Department of Health, but I can't remember. <laughs> Maybe because I never saw a green paper when I was there. Is there a difference in the paper that these green paper, white papers are published on? Is it a matter of like the green papers on paper. green paper? Yeah. As far as I know, n- no. But I'd need to go and check. But I don't think they are. Okay. Maybe maybe one of our <laughs> listeners will message in. And Maybe tell historically us. it might have been, yeah. but... No, I've not seen a green paper in a while either, so maybe. (laughs) Well, I look forward to finding out. Um, Just one last question for you, and that is, what is the most unusual question you've been asked in the library service? Ooh, we get a large range of questions. The ones that spring to mind are, why doesn't the NHS try and generate more income by selling medical marijuana? That's quite a tough one to answer. It's probably not for me to answer. (laughs) What do you answer? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know the economics of the marijuana trade. So it's it's difficult for me to say what the cost effectiveness and the income generation that that might bring to the NHS. The other one that springs to mind was from a television researcher who wanted to know how many people who go to A&E are there because of a sex-related injury. And the answer? We don't know. Because it's not recorded, is that? Well, so in the data, the diagnosis is recorded, but not the reason why. So we could look up how many people maybe have a back injury at A&E, but they're not all necessarily going to have been there because of a sex-related injury. (laughs) So difficult to say, basically. The only source of data is a Daily Mail poll. Which asks people about their own experiences? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so it's... um, It's a (laughs) self-selecting sample there. (laughs) Okay. But obviously what you are saying is that the library service uh, does not judge any question. And that all questions are good questions and valid in themselves. Yes. No judgment. Well, thank you, Hongan. And what I do want you to tell listeners now is just how they can submit questions to you if they have any and and they'd like us to cover it in a future episode. So you can tweet us at the King's Fund, or you can email us at podcast at kingsfund.org.uk. Fantastic. And we will anonymise the question if yes. people want that to happen. Yeah. And Great. if they want to ask another sex injury related question. 
Fantastic. Thank you, Honga. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's it from us for today. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your friends about it. And if you have feedback or ideas for topics you'd like to hear covered in future episodes, then please get in touch either on Twitter at The King's Fund or my account at Helena Macarena. Or you can leave feedback on our website, which is www.kingsfund.org.uk or via the podcast mailbox that Hongan just outlined, which is podcast at kingsfund.org.uk. Goodbye for now and hope you can join us for the next episode of the King's Fund podcast. Thank you.